You're listening to the Core Life Training. What is it? Core Life Training Podcast. Of course it is. With Jeff Olson. Hey, what's up, my friends? This is Jeff, the Core Life Training Podcast, where we dig into the Bible, get down with some killer tunes, and cool out with a tasty, tasty, tasty drink of choice. Welcome to a coronavirus episode. This is episode number 17. All right, as you know, we have been on lockdown for like ever it feels like right now. Uh, You can't go anywhere. You can't freaking do anything. And it sucks in so many ways. I don't even need to go into it for you. I hope you guys are staying safe and doing well and all that stuff. Uh, One cool thing that's come out of it for me, though, is every Thursday night, I've been jumping on Zoom to answer some Bible questions for people. And it's been a great group of people with some really great questions. It's been a lot of fun just for one hour on Thursday nights. And I realized after a few weeks of that, that this is basically the Core Life Training Podcast just done live. So I decided I'd record them, I'd edit them down, add on a drink of choice and a metal moment, and there you'd have some podcast episodes. This episode comes right out of the Easter season. The question is, how in the world could the crowd welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, crying Hosanna and hailing him as king, and then two days later turn around and cry out, crucify, crucify, before Pontius Pilate? So it's a great question. I'm going to work through that one this week, and then I've got four or five more episodes already dialed down for you guys. Don't forget that after the break is the drink of choice and the metal moment. And man, listen, 2020 has sucked for so many reasons, but man, there has been some killer new music that has come out this year. Uh, We started out the year seeing some awesome concerts. So many more have been canceled. It's been so lame. But man, some really killer records have come out, and I want to share some of that stuff with you. That's coming up after the break, if you dig it. Right now, why don't you grab your Bible, your notebook, and your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. Okay, so we just came through Easter season, and uh, one of the issues that came up, uh, one of the questions that came up from kind of this whole Easter passage uh, that we've been through in the last several weeks comes from... Uh, Jesus' triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11, where the crowd hails Christ as the king who's coming, and uh, they're super excited about it, and they, you know, put out the leaves on the on the road and welcome him as the king. And then the way it's usually portrayed in sermons that I've ever heard, it's usually sort of portrayed like the crowd is super fickle. So on the one hand, they welcome Jesus as the king as he comes walking in. And then just two days later, they turn around and they're crying out to Pilate to crucify him. Um, And then the question is always, how in the world could you go from hail Jesus the king to crucify him? I mean, I'm all for changing your mind and everything. Like I'm I'm all about changing my mind, but uh, that's pretty dramatic and pretty drastic and doesn't seem... um, doesn't seem to be the most obvious explanation. Uh, so the question got asked, uh, how, how do we explain the crowd and the changing reaction from uh, hailing him as king to crying out for his crucifixion? And the author of the Gospel of Mark actually explains this for us in the text. He makes it real clear uh, for us what's going on. Um, so if you have your Bibles, we can, uh, we can open up to Mark chapter 11. And I want to just give you a quick structure of the Gospel of Mark, just to kind of help you think about how the Gospel of Mark works. Uh, Mark structures, structures his Gospel with three main sort of movements or acts. If you're thinking about it like a movie or a play, there's three main acts. 
Uh, Jesus starts out doing ministry, preaching, teaching, and doing miracles uh, in and around Galilee. This is chapter one, all the way through uh, towards the end of chapter eight, uh, chapter eight, verse 26. And then the second act is uh, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from 827 all the way through chapter 10, uh, 52. Uh, just recounts his journey on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. And those chapters really recount his travel along the way. And then the last act of the of the story is chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through the end of the book in chapter 16, verse 8. So Jesus has been on the way here for several chapters, and as we pick up the story in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. Jesus shows up in Mark chapter 11, and he says to his disciples, I'm going to need a donkey, so go ahead. This has been arranged. Go find the guy. Get his donkey. Say the Lord has need of it. Uh, the, the disciples go out and find the guy. They find the donkey, and they bring the colt to Jesus. It's verse 7, and they put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And verse 8 says, And many people spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, uh, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in from uh, those who went in front and those who followed behind were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. I, it'd be fun to go back and look at some of the Jesus movies that have ever been put out and to see how the makers of those movies portray this particular crowd. Um, it would be kind of easy to assume that this is a group of people just sort of pouring out of the city, coming out to meet Jesus outside of Jerusalem, uh, to welcome him as the king, as if they're people from Jerusalem. Um, but the author of Mark shows us back in chapter 10, verse 46, that this is really a crowd that's actually been traveling with Jesus for a while. So if you look at chapter 10, verse 46, it says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples uh, and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Um, so there's a whole crowd of people that are leaving Jericho with Jesus, when he ends up meeting Bartimaeus, and then ultimately, this is the crowd that comes along uh, with Christ all the way to Jerusalem. And if you look at chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, you'll see that some of this crowd, uh, some people in this crowd have been following Jesus all the way back from Galilee. And this is uh, at the end of the story of the crucifixion, when Christ breathes his last and the veil of the temple, this is verse 37, 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And you may want to note in your Bible or make some notes in your notes somewhere, Jesus' identity as the son of God, the king who comes in the last day. Mark, uh, sorry, the, the author of Matthew is highlighting Jesus' identity as the son of David. And the author of Mark is highlighting his identity as the Son of God. Uh, both are titles for the king who comes in the last day. And Mark highlights it at the very beginning of the book. Um, he says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then he has the Lord call Jesus his son out of heaven at the baptism. He said, this is my beloved son. Um, in the very middle of the book, so in the structure of the book, the author's highlighting this at the beginning. Uh, Jesus is called the Son of God in the middle, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord again out of heaven says, this is my beloved Son, you should listen to him. And then now here at the end, Jesus' identity as the Son of God is being highlighted. And this time it's by a human being. This is the one human being in the whole story 
that calls Jesus this title. Otherwise, it's been God himself or demons that call Jesus the Son of God. And it's ironic that it's a Gentile centurion, it's a Roman centurion that that gets Jesus' identity uh, along with God himself and the demons. So in verse 40, there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So some people in this crowd in Mark chapter 11 have come all the way back from Galilee. They've been with him for a long time. Some of these people he's picked up in Jericho as he was leaving Jericho. And they were all coming up with Christ uh, as supporters, right? Clearly, they're looking for the restoration of David's kingdom. And this is what they're crying out in uh, Mark chapter 11 when they say, Hosanna. And then verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So these people have some concept of God's promise to David that he would restore David's kingdom through one of his sons. There would be a king. Uh, One of David's sons would be the king who comes in the last day. These people have some concept of that. And they are supporters that are looking for the restoration of David's kingdom uh, in Christ. And the way the author portrays these cheers for Jesus He really portrays them as an honest expression of their hope of the coming kingdom, that Jesus would fulfill uh, God's promise uh, of the coming king. Uh, So there's nothing in the text that would sort of indicate this is like a fickle crowd or they don't really mean this or anything like this. This is an authentic cry of hope um, for the fulfillment of the promise. Okay, so that's the crowd at the entry uh, of Jerusalem as Jesus is about to enter the city. So again, you know, if you're just reading the text and you're just booking along, you know, kind of trying to get through your three or four chapters a day or whatever, and you're not paying close attention, you might miss this kind of thing. But if you're just reading and paying attention at all, you can see the author has kind of already told us some of these details um, and the things that we really need to know to understand this stuff are are just right there in the text. Um, So if you want to flip over to Mark chapter 15, we'll look at this other crowd. And I want to give you a little little background on the setting of Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark. Um, The way the author of Mark portrays the city of Jerusalem, at least as it relates to uh, Jerusalem's response to Jesus, is always negative. So um, we'll look at just a few passages. If you you, uh, go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 22. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus had healed somebody on the Sabbath and then chosen his disciples. This is all of the beginning of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 20, he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. And his own people heard of this and they went out to take custody of him. His own family were trying to arrest Jesus. They were trying to lay hands on him. They thought he was nuts, what he was doing. Uh, For they were saying he's lost his mind, right? He's lost his senses. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem... We're saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. Uh-oh, that's not good. Right? The, the religious leaders and teachers who should know better, they hear about Jesus and what he's doing up in Galilee. They get news about it, and they decide they're going to go try to take care of this because uh, they're not interested. And they come down, they say he, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and that he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So essentially, they're saying Jesus is doing his miracles by the power of the devil. Right, that's not good. That's not good uh, coming from Jerusalem towards Jesus. Right, that's not support. That's not help or encouragement. Uh, that's opposition that's coming from Jerusalem. Flip over to Mark chapter seven, verse one. And in Mark chapter seven, verse one, 
the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Oh no, here we go again, right? If it's scribes and Pharisees and they come from Jerusalem, actually in the story of Mark, if it's scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, it doesn't matter where they come from. Uh, they're, they're not happy with Jesus. Uh, but these guys come from Jerusalem and they had seen that uh, the disciples were eating their hands without washing their hands first. And they, for them, that's a moral problem. They get all bent out of shape at Jesus, and he just lets them have it uh, for the next 37 verses. Actually, the next 23 verses, uh, he lets those guys have it. That's actually a pretty fun passage. Uh, Jesus really mocks them, and there's, there's some comedy in there as well. So again, scribes coming from Jerusalem, and what does he get out of Jerusalem? He gets opposition. Uh, if you go to chapter 8, verse 31... Jesus says that he is going to Jerusalem. He began to teach and say, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. Where do those guys come from? Where do they live? They live in Jerusalem and be killed and after three days uh, rise again. And then lastly, uh, over in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, on the road going up to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus was walking on ahead. And he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen. He said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. So the way, and and that's, that's really every mention of Jerusalem until you get there in the story of Mark. And as it relates to Jesus is always opposition. Nothing good is coming out of Jerusalem uh, for him. So let's look at the crowd then in Jerusalem and see uh, what kind of uh, what kind of group this is? If you jump over to Mark 15, uh, Jesus early in the morning had gotten before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate's the Roman governor, and he is uh, now in charge of. I don't, I don't know if it's a, a trial is quite the right word, but he's uh, questioning Jesus. He says, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And Jesus says, "You said it. You got that right. Literally, the text says, you say.'" You say it, you got it. That's right. And the chief priest, uh, priest began to accuse him harshly. And then Pilate questioned, questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was amazed. He was astonished. He didn't understand. That's the word in the Gospel of Mark that uh, always means I don't get it. They're astonished. They're kind of dumbfounded. And Pilate is the same way. Uh, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner who they requested. And a man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed, committed murder in the insurrection. Um, the author of Mark doesn't really give us much of the background on that story at all, other than this guy Barabbas was um, against the government. He was part of a group that was against the government. That's what an insurrection is. Uh, he participated and he killed people in it. Um, not a good guy. Not, not somebody that you would think the chief priests and the elders would want to release. And then verse 8, the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do this uh, to do for them. And the question is, where the heck did where the heck does this crowd come from? Like how in the world do they know to show up early in the morning at Pilate's house or at Pilate's uh, not not at his house uh, at the place where uh, Pilate is uh, interviewing Jesus? How do they know to show up there? In the text, they just kind of show up out of nowhere. Like what's a crowd doing there? Uh, the author, again, the author tells us these details if we're paying attention. Look back in Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And what does it mean that they held a consultation? 
They got together and talked about it. They made a plan, right? They got together, all of them with Jesus. Uh, they had bound up Jesus. They they had him already for questioning, and they're making a plan, and they decide they're going to lead him away to Pilate. Now, as part of this plan, the author seems to indicate that they had uh, organized a crowd to show up early in the morning at Pilate's place. How else in the world would they know to be there? So it seems that the crowd has been prepared by the chief priests and uh, by the elders and all those guys uh, to go up to Pilate's and basically help them put pressure on Pilate. So Pilate answered and said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He was aware that the chief priests had handed him over out of envy. So he at least understood the chief priest's political motive in handing Jesus over to him. Uh, They're not interested in some other king. They like their position of authority. They like their power. They're not interested in somebody else. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them. So the cry to crucify Jesus that comes in verse 13, when Pilate says, what should I do with the one you call the king of the Jews, they shout crucify. And Pilate says, why? What has he done? And they just keep yelling crucify. That cry for crucifixion is stirred up by the chief priests, right? They incite that in the crowd. They coach that in this particular crowd. So in other words, this isn't the crowd of supporters that came from Galilee and came from Jericho who have somehow now all of a sudden changed their mind. And now they're listening to the scribes and Pharisees where before they loved Jesus as king and now they want him crucified because they're fickle. Um, This is a different crowd and it's a crowd that the scribes and Pharisees have rallied up and organized and are using sort of as a mouthpiece to put pressure um, on Pilate as part of their plot to kill Jesus. Uh, so basically the author of Mark shows us two different crowds, not one crowd that changes its mind. So you can see uh, it's it's actually pretty, it's a pretty simple explanation for how it can be that <laughs> a crowd could change its mind so quickly. Well, it actually didn't change its mind. Um, it's a pretty simple explanation. The details are all there in the text for us if we're paying attention. But you can also see if you're not paying attention, if you're kind of just booking along quickly, you can also see how you might miss that detail. You might miss chapter 10, uh, 10 verse 46 that says, the crowd came with Jesus from Jericho. You might miss that if you're just booking along. Uh, so you can see where the mistake gets made that this is one crowd change in its mind. Uh, but you can also see if you're paying attention, it's pretty simple to understand. Hey, Jeff, I've got a question for you about, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Yeah, we, in English, we use the word amazed like, oh my gosh, that's amazing, right? So the guy that rides a unicycle on a high wire and juggles bowling ball pins that are on fire, we go, that's amazing, because it is amazing. Uh, the Greek word here doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean, wow, that's awesome or cool or unbelievable. This particular word uh, means Astonished, like I don't get what's happening here. I don't get it at all. 
and it's used throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's thematic. It's a theme. Everybody's amazed in the story. Its disciples are amazed. They're astonished. They don't get it. Uh, religious leaders are amazed and astonished. Uh, Pilate here is amazed. Pilate can't believe it either. Like he doesn't understand. He just doesn't quite comprehend what's happening. Uh, so in uh, chapter fifteen, verse five, Pilate is amazed, and what he's amazed by is that Jesus will not defend himself. Right? Pilate says, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Jesus said, "You said it. You got that right." And that's it. He says no more, and Pilate can't believe it. He's he's astonished by that fact. In verse five. Yeah, and then that theme comes up again big time at the very end of the book, the last eight verses of the book in chapter 16. Jesus told them, I'm going to rise again on the third day. And when the tomb is empty, everybody's amazed. No, nobody can believe it. Nobody understands what's happening. So yeah, it doesn't mean uh, that the English word has a broader meaning and it can be something positive where the Greek word that's being translated into English as amazed really is in Mark's gospel a negative any other questions about uh, this this particular text? What we're doing here? Yeah, yeah go ahead, Ken. About Jesus, you mean? Yes. Well, it's interesting. Um, the author of Mark doesn't say anything about it. Um, I'm trying to remember which which gospel author. It might be in the book of John. Let's look over in John real quick. Um, one of the other gospel authors kind of gives you an idea of uh, what what could happen or what Pilate's motive here might have been. Let's see if I can find this. Oh, yeah, it is the gospel of John. So this is John chapter 19. And so I'll just start reading it in verse 8. The author of John kind of gives us a little bit more detail than the author of Mark does. Um, when Pilate heard uh, this statement, he was even more afraid. So they're trying to explain to Pilate why they're mad at Jesus. He's claiming to be the Son of God, and this is blasphemy and all like that. And um, they're crying out to Pilate, crucify, crucify. And Pilate in verse 6 says, you take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. They say, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he's made himself out to be the Son of God. He enters, Pilate enters into the praetorium again, and he says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said, you don't speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Now, again, there's the irony, like who actually has the authority in the story here? Jesus for sure. And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out. So Pilate's trying to get Jesus out of his off his plate here. Like, Pilate doesn't want anything to do with this whole thing. Uh, this has gotten weird for him. Pilate doesn't quite get the Jews' laws on this stuff, and he's not interested in crucifying some guy for some weird theological argument that these Jews are having with each other. Pilate's trying to make efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, this is verse 12, and here's where uh, you kind of get a little bit of the backstory. They cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes them out himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And the implication there is they're questioning Pilate's uh, loyalty to Caesar if he were to let Jesus go. You can imagine what trouble that would be if it somehow got back to Caesar that one of his governors was um, helping prop up or, or helping out this guy that wants to be king instead of Caesar. So it seems like they're sort of hinting at Pilate that they would, they would go over his head and let it be known 
uh, above him that somehow he was helping out somebody that wanted to be king instead of Caesar. But Mark doesn't give us any of that. Mark's not interested in those details. Uh, The author of John is, but Mark isn't. Hey, right on, man. I hope that was helpful for you. And listen, if you are interested in getting on Zoom with me on Thursday nights as I do these Q&A times live, all you need to do is email me at jeff at corelifetraining.org and let me know you want in and I'll get you on the invite list. Stay home and stay safe. And I really appreciate you guys checking out this episode. Don't forget after the outro is the drink of choice and the metal moment if you dig it. My name is Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible and I will check you later. Dig it, man. All right. So this episode's drink of choice comes to you from Great Divide Brewing. Uh, It's called Chocolate Cherry Yeti. Now, I'm a huge Great Divide fan. I love Yeti Imperial Stout, but I've never had the chocolate cherry version of this thing. Uh, I found it at Grocery Outlet the other day in a 19-ounce can and was pretty stoked to bring it home. It's definitely tasty. So it's made with uh, sweet and sour cherries. It's made with cocoa. And you can taste all that stuff in there. Uh, If you're an Imperial Stout fan and you like a little sweetness to your Imperial Stout, that's a good one to pick up. Now, 2020 has been a killer year for new heavy music, as I said before. This year started out in January with one of my very favorite bands coming out with a brand new record. This band is called Yatra. I got to see them last year here in Portland, and they just killed it. Last year, they put out a great record called Death Ritual. And in January of this year, they put out a record called Blood of the Night. Death Ritual was awesome last year. Blood of the Night is even awesomer this year. And I want to play a track off of Blood of the Night called The Howling. Uh, When they were here last year, they played a lot of this new music live. And so we got to hear it live before it was even on the record. And as it came out on the record, man, it just did not disappoint. So here's one of my favorite bands, Yatra, playing The Howling off of Blood of the Night. Why don't you grab your drink of choice, kick back, and crank it up. <laughs> 